Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. This chat was recorded at the end of November 2019 in Sheffield and is with Sarah Hill, Chief Executive Officer of IDAS, which is the Independent Domestic Abuse Service operating across Yorkshire. Sarah is passionate about tackling violence against women and girls and providing specialist support for victims and survivors of abuse. As well as being Chief Exec of IDAS, Sarah is on the board of the Women's Aid Federation and is part of Akivo's Women's Steering Group. We chat about the changes in the commissioning environment and how IDAS has responded to those and as a result has seen growth from a few hundred thousand turnover to around four million this financial year. We therefore also talk about Sarah's own leadership journey with the organisation, shifting from managing a handful of people to now leading an organisation of around 120 staff. We also chat about Prince Andrew, the domestic abuse bill, why only cats need meat, and the social and moral responsibility for larger and smaller organisations to work collaboratively. I hope that you enjoy listening. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to the other episodes this year and congratulate you on making it through to December. I hope that you have a fantastic break over the Christmas period. It's also worth noting that I sound nowhere near this rough in the actual main podcast. Today I'm joined by Sarah Hill, who is Chief Executive of IDAS, which is the Independent Domestic Abuse Services, or service, singular. Service, Service. yeah. Okay. Sarah has been Chief Exec at IDAS for 10 years. Something like that, yeah. Pretty amazing. And you've always worked around women's issues, women's aid, domestic violence, or violence against women and girls. Do you want to give us a bit of an overview of your career to date? Yes, Okay, I will do. Um, So I started as a fairly fresh student years ago, um, working with children in a refuge, small refuge in Huddersfield, as a play worker. And I suppose that really introduced me into some of the trauma that children experience as a result of domestic abuse. And it also allowed me to go out playing football and lots of games with lots of different children, different ages, so it's quite... It was sad, but also quite good fun. From there, I suppose I started then to get more experience of actually supporting adults, became a refuge worker, more general refuge worker, done things like outreach work, and then um, got promoted to team leader and eventually uh, got a job at York Women's Aid, as it was then about 15 years ago, as a manager. So I've very much come through the whole system. Mm. So I've done most jobs that you can do in a refuge or within a women's sector or domestic mm. abuse sector, then I've probably done those at some point, which has given me a really good grounding, I suppose, of knowledge of understanding the impacts and the effects of abuse and trauma, and also a real practical knowledge of how you can work to try to resolve some of those or mm. how agencies can develop services to resolve some of those or help and you started out at citizens advice bureau as oh well. yes yeah, yeah i forgot about citizens advice bureau yeah i did some voluntary work originally at cab so that was really good really good fun i worked there for about a year or something as a volunteer got me a really nice experience in benefits and debts yeah. and welfare and all of that sort of stuff so that was good so yeah. it's kind of a, a broader 
much broader. Broader start, if you like. Yeah, a broader start, but it allowed me, I suppose, to have kind of like a real practical overview of all the systems that could combine to make someone's life difficult. Um, And that against someone trying to escape or experiencing domestic abuse is, I suppose, doubly or triply harsh, but it was quite good to have that knowledge about how someone not being able to access benefits or housing or being in debt could all combine to have a bigger impact in terms of making it difficult for someone to leave an abusive relationship or see the abusive relationship or being dependent on someone because they needed to be. Should we talk a bit about your journey as a leader? Sounds so cliche, doesn't it? (laughs) Disgusting. (laughs) Tell us about your journey as a leader in the organisation. So I guess there are a few questions around that. How you have found it moving up within one organisation Mm-hmm. and how you make sure that you keep things fresh and bring mm-hmm. different perspectives. Because being at one organisation um, can sometimes sort of just embed one sort of way of working, mm-hmm. I guess. Definitely. So I think it's that's an interesting question, how have I found being a leader? I'm not sure whether I'm quite there yet. I am a leader, obviously, but I think I'm still very much developing. What's been interesting for me, I think, is that IDAS has been a little bit like a startup business. So it's always because we've developed absolutely massively. So we started off with a at York Women's Aid with a turnover of about 300,000 a year, and we've now got a turnover of about 4 million quid a year. It means that the excitement of developing new initiatives and winning contracts and winning tenders has, has made it very easy to stay involved with the charity. It's made it very mm. easy for me um, because I do like new things I like um challenges I like to think of different ways that you can solve the problems that are there for people that are living with domestic abuse it's been quite an easy process to stay involved for all those years I think when I started I would say that I was a very informal manager I think people call it authentic leadership now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so because I, generous. Yeah, yeah. Because I've been I've grown up through the sector and I've been a worker myself in, in difficult situations in refugees. I understand, I suppose, what can help keep staff motivated and keep them involved and engaged mm. and what sort of support that they might need to be able to deliver the work in the best way. I think as you get bigger and bigger and lose more and more touch with your services, the Mm. challenge then becomes to retain the authentic nature of why you're involved and all of that kind of passion and commitment and compassion that you can show to staff and to to clients and people using the services, but also then make sure that you've got all of the underpinning things that any larger organisation needs to thrive. So all of the governance, the infrastructure, the financial stability, the risk management. So that's been a challenge for me to sort of change from that very, I suppose, quite approachable manager of, say, three or four or five people to being a leader of an organisation that now has a team of 100, 120 people and and growing Mm. and to make sure that I challenge myself so that everyone that's a manager can I suppose still be authentic but that we've got the structures and we've got the infrastructure in place to support and that'll be the biggest challenge I think going forward as well as we continue to to grow. I feel like some people who have taken that step 
find that real disconnect between the frontline delivery that they've had previously and don't necessarily enjoy some of the, the sort of financial sustainability stuff and the governance stuff. How have you found that? I think because IDAS is still to a degree in a stage of development and in a stage of flux in terms of us embedding all of our approaches and evaluating them and still finding out what works and winning new contracts and making those contracts safe. I think there's still an element of quite exciting business development that I can be involved in. It is a question that I've asked myself. I know that when we moved five, six years ago to a much more formal board structure, which has really mm. helped me. So I think the the boards that we had before that time were very much like a management committee, which was absolutely yeah. fine. They were lovely, gave us lots of support as a charity, but they didn't put in place, I suppose, all the form, formal structures that you need to really thrive and to ensure that you're delivering things in a very safe way and that you mm. can meet all the risks that are out there. So I think I probably maybe four or five years ago underwent that transformation and really did have to do some serious thinking about whether a more structured formal organization which is what essentially we've become with all of the things in place that you need to have in place to thrive was for me or whether I wanted to move on to another startup and do some more business development in terms of keeping in touch with the work I mean, it's really easy for me because all I need to do is arrange a visit to one of the refuges and it puts me right back into that kind of sense of what it's like to live in a women's refuge, what it's like to consider escaping domestic abuse, what it's like to be undergoing that relationship. So it's quite easy for me to kind of remind myself really of why we're here as a charity Mm. and the amazing work that our staff do as well in that support process. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you're just sat in a head office no somewhere in a completely different region and not seeing that frontline stuff no I think when you get to a really you know a large charity 10 20 million quid and you really have become then someone that is overseeing risk assessments risk management funding commissioning business development plans communication strategies all Mm. of the things that come with that that becomes a, a slightly different challenge but I think that I'm in a quite a lucky space, really, because I can still dip into that work quite easily. Yeah. So I was really privileged to be invited along to your staff conference yeah. a couple of months ago and do some fundraising workshops. Thank you for great. coming. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I really enjoyed it. There's something quite topical, I think, within the fundraising subsector in particular is around the impact of working for, I guess, traditionally called difficult causes, but quite hard-hitting, emotive Mm -hmm. causes. And I certainly felt that. Some of the speeches were just so powerful. Mm -hmm. I thought I... I need to get out of the room actually it was a bit Mm. it was a bit much for me which isn't a criticism at all by the way Mm. um but it but yeah it sort of it sort of got to me a bit and I think so there's an obvious question about how do you deal with some of that for example when you started out working with children seeing the actual impact of that Mm. like how do you how do you deal with that as an individual and how do you support your team or what things do you put in place mm. f- for your team who are who are dealing with those things day in, day out? Yeah. So I think probably one of the first things that I realised when I first started working or after a few months of working is that this, this that's not 
my life I'm looking I can walk away and go home mm. and um that you work more effectively if you're you've got those boundaries that you mm. understand what really clearly what your role is and what your role isn't inevitably we'd be robots if we weren't affected by the things that we see and by some of the people we're supporting day in day out but then you need all the support mechanisms in place we provide external counseling and supervision for staff we provide I suppose telephone assistance if people want to offload there's a good management structure in place now mm. so that people can get that case management support but you have to be I suppose like anyone that is working in difficult circumstances if you're working in hospital if you're working with people with all sorts of needs or issues if you're working with people that are living on the street you have to I suppose adapt quite a boundaried approach to that whilst keeping in mind that you're only really helpful if you've got those boundaries in place because if you start to become too emotionally involved or start to become upset on a day-to-day basis by the things that you see it's probably not the right work for you. you you can't kind of support that person and I think it's about seeing people as individuals and seeing that opportunity that you've got to really help change that course of life for someone but it's not your life it's Mm -hmm. it's theirs you know and they have to make those choices and your role is really to empower and support but it's not your life to kind of command or do with so it's always keeping that in your mind I think when you're in that yeah the boundaries yeah the boundaries approach yeah the other thing that that struck me at your staff conference was the amazing women that work for your organization yeah. who are just incredibly passionate incredibly down to earth mm. and approachable and driven they and, certainly are amazing women yeah absolutely um but with all of those incredible qualities <laughs> I, I imagine there are some challenges in managing people like that, are there? Well, I think um, it's an interesting one because you want staff to have a voice, don't you? You want, yeah. you want your staff in our work or you want your, your support workers to really be courageous and compassionate and to be able to fight for the rights of the women and the people that they're supporting, absolutely. But, yeah, of course, I mean, that will make some feisty team meetings sometimes, particularly if you're trying to um, put in place a new system or a change that perhaps they can think wouldn't be practical, wouldn't be implemented very easily across the Mm organisation. But, yeah, I'd rather have that feistiness and that voice and that opinion embedded than, I suppose, people that weren't able to speak out. The other thing, of course, is that they a lot of the support workers will see day in, day out, some of the results of, I suppose, difficult decisions or difficult things that the people we support have to encounter. So it might be there's um, a criminal justice system decision that's gone against someone. Mm. Social services might be involved in a case. Someone might just not be able to go through the family court system with the support that they need. And I think it's... It's a challenge for those staff to sometimes fight for their the people that are working with and be the voice for the people that are working with, but not rub up against other professionals because yeah. we all have roles to play and it's mm. it's difficult, I think, sometimes in that context as well. Yeah. 
can we talk a bit about commissioning? Which yeah, I think we, we both love commissioning. <laughs> we both agreed <laughs> might be a bit of a boring topic, <laughs> but also. Kind of commissioners. Inc- yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that there are commissioners listening to our podcast, but um, maybe, maybe yeah. we'll reach a whole new audience. I looked at the headline accounts for the last few years on the Charity Commission website, and you've grown by nearly two million just in the past few years. Yeah. And your voluntary income is only like 100 grand or something like mm-hmm. that, I think, Very from small. memory. Yeah. So you have basically transformed the charity from being a small charity mm-hmm. of like what five or six people and grown and developed it to be one of well the biggest domestic abuse service charity in the region. Yeah. Yeah. So well done, um, well done with thank that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk to us a bit about how that has happened in yeah. the commissioning environment? So things became competitive about 15 years ago, I think. So services that had previously been funded by local authority grants started to be funded through what was the old supporting people budget, which now has been devolved into local authority funding streams more generally. Um, I think at the same time as you got this, this kind of fund set up through supporting people, obviously had to be some quality framework attached to how local authorities made decisions about who they would fund and who they wouldn't. So it reduced some of the flexibility, I think, that charities probably prior to that had in terms of how they delivered and developed services. And it put a lot of pressure on smaller charities. So what happened, particularly for IDAS, is that two things, really. We decided that because of the way that commissioning sector was going, that we probably couldn't stay very small, that actually at some point commissioning within North Yorkshire particularly would mean that there was no way that anyone was going to commission our service with a project manager, Harrogate service with a project manager, Selby service with a project manager, Mm -hmm. and all of these distinct different services. So we started talking to the other charity the specialist charities in the area about whether there was any opportunity for us to come together and work together mm-hmm. um, when commissioning opportunities happened. And we were able to merge through those discussions with Harrogate Women's Aid and eventually Selby and Craven Services. So that put us in a better position, I suppose, financially, because it meant that we weren't all as expensive. Yeah. Um, The other thing that we did was that we realised that commissioners were starting to favour more of a a non-gendered approach to community-based commissioning. So our services are, we have some single-sex women's refuges and groups for women survivors, but we also have in the community services non-gender specific services. So we provide IDVA services, which are services that support people through the living in the community through any stage of the journey they're at with domestic abuse so they might still be living with their partner they might be undertaking a criminal justice process they might want emotional support because they're recovering from uh, abuse so those services started to be commissioned for men and women so we decided that we would have to consider then be moving, I suppose, from a women-only service, which Mm. is what York Women's Aid was, to opening up some of our services to male victims as well. Um, And with that decision, we changed our brand. And that really was the unlocking key, I suppose, that enabled us to 
go for some of the commission funding that we wouldn't have been able to in the past. Mm. So it was several things. So the joining of several organisations together, redefining ourselves or redefining our brand and being really clear about what our brand would be, being very clear about what our model of support is mm-hmm. as well. So we still provide those very distinct women-only services, which are absolutely unique and important, but we have this other arm that we provide, this kind of generic service. Mm-hmm. And that's enabled us to, I suppose, bid competitively, both outside yeah. of North Yorkshire and also for contracts that we wouldn't have been able to in the past. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I suppose with commissioning as well, one of the dangers 10 years ago, five years ago still is that the smaller specialist charities don't become attractive to commissioners because mm. commissioners love, I think, to know that an organisation has a good deal of resilience and a good deal of ability to flex. So mm. we're so big now that if something happened with, I don't know, a helpline provision down in Sheffield, then we know, commissioners know that we could draw in resources from other areas. And I think it's sad that that need, I think, for commissioners, which is obviously a pra- practical, pragmatic need, has meant that it's difficult to make decisions to commission smaller organisations. It's mm. easier to sort of provide a grant. It's easier for those organisations to get funded through comic relief, lottery funding, for distinct project work. But it's commissioners want to see that that resilience is there for organisations. And I think in the domestic abuse sector... That's why a lot of commissioning decisions over the last few years have tended to favour bigger housing associations, mm. bigger generic organisations that don't provide that real specialist, knowledgeable, um, in-touch service that the specialist organisations do, but can provide that greater evidence of resilience. Mm. I think some of that's changing back, though, Beth. I think some... Um, commissioners are seeing that actually oh we commissioned that five years ago it's a generic housing provider it's not delivered us any added value necessarily they've not gone out and raised money through comic relief they've not put in groups they've not developed extra services for us and actually what victims telling us is that they want to know that they're safe to go and approach the service they want to know that that is a specialist service particularly in our area of work yeah so so as you were talking then I was I was thinking, so should smaller organisations look to do what IDAS has done in terms of should they uh, plan and aspire to be bigger organisations and join with others and, um, you know, sort of grow to be able to have that resilience and maintain that specialism or should they sort of Not necessarily. I think there's several things that they've got choices. So I think a number of organisations now are thriving since they had their local authority contracts were removed. So I can think of a couple of sort of um, sister organisations, specialist organisations that lost commission funding, that now have lottery funding, have been able to buy refuges through loans, that are absolutely thriving in that area and maintain their independence. So I think if if those organisations can think, what would happen if we were decommissioned? What's our backup plan? How would we use our reserves? How do we get to this stage that we've we've got something in reserve? And if they can answer, yes, we'd do A, B or C, they should perhaps be starting to think about developing that approach before that happens. If they don't have that answer, then those are the organisations that possibly should be thinking, should we merge with something bigger? 
Should mm. we go to a larger specialist organisation that will have more ability to retain those commissioned services? Yeah. But if if independence can be maintained by those smaller organisations, brilliant. You know, if yeah. they could if they could say, I'm thinking about um, there's an organisation up in Newcastle that lost their commissioned funding two or three years ago. They're absolutely thriving now. They've got all sorts of lots of other income streams. They can do, they they frame it in, we're, we're independent, we can do what we want. We can apply for a piece of funding if we want to do that yeah, work, but yeah. we don't have to kind of meet the needs of commissioners. So they've really found a, a successful route through that whole commissioning pathway and yeah. they've, they've now retained and regained their independence. But I think if you're small... And you really wouldn't know what to do if you, if your service was decommissioned. Then that's the point. If you want to protect that service, that probably to have those conversations with larger organisations. The other thing that we do, and I think this is a responsibility for the larger specialist organisations, is that we, through our commission services, fund smaller organisations. So, for instance, over in our Barnsley service, we've got a, a service level agreement with the rape and sexual violence service over there. So we directly fund them. So we, okay. we hold the contract, but we commission them to provide elements of the work. And I think that is, it should be something that larger organisations consider as a sense of responsibility, not just to the smaller organisations. Those smaller organisations are often the one connection between with the survivor that the survivor has with support. So yeah. there's almost like a social responsibility, I think, yeah. wherever possible to consider from the larger organisation's perspective, can we work with those smaller organisations, not to affect their independence, not to take them in, but yeah, actually yeah, yeah. can we give them something back? Yeah, a moral and social responsibility yeah. to do absolutely. that. Absolutely, absolutely. As well as strengthening the sector. Yeah, it strengthens the sector. Yeah. It keeps independent voices in the sector. So one of my concerns, I suppose, when we did uh, move to being... The, the main, if not the only specialist organisation across North Yorkshire is that you lose all of those voices. You lose that mm. slight local independence. And our model is to try to retain wherever we can local offices, local teams, local spaces that are in touch and engaged with local communities. Because if you lose that, you, you've sort of lost something about the heart of who you are mm. and survivors again find it more difficult to come forward and don't see you as a local organization so yeah it's um it's a shame I think if larger organizations just take over contracts and don't do that consideration yeah. for can we actually commission smaller organizations within yeah. the sector so before we started recording we were talking a little bit about how people work collaboratively mm-hmm and are open to supporting each other <laughs> yes. or not within yeah. the sector. And I think I think a lot of the time we talk about people and organisations being very carey-sherry and everybody's sharing like, oh, I had a fantastic meeting with so-and-so and, and that kind of vibe. But I think I've found as a freelancer within the sector, mm-hmm. there, are, there are people and organisations who have been less receptive to me doing certain things mm-hmm. let's say yeah um and um obvious sort of pushback from certain areas in in different sort of local regions so what's your experience yeah so I think certainly within the voluntary sector there is a competitive environment that's obviously been created through 
competitive tendering and competition, it is sometimes difficult to assess or um, understand why people want to work with you or whether it comes from a genuine spirit of wanting to collaborate or whether there is something that that they want to compete with you on mm-hmm. or take from you and you know take perhaps one of your usps and start mm. to start to, to nick it i think there's that sense generally that the space the funding space is quite small in some respects the commissioning space mm. is quite small so it generates that competitive environment and then i think some areas are just a bit stranger than others in terms of working and wanting to work so or, or a bit more um cautious about strangers coming in on the patch and wanting to take over and be involved in the conversation and I suppose realistically some organisations have worked together and fought together for years haven't they to develop the voluntary sector develop the women's sector develop the domestic abuse sector and for new people coming along and that have maybe been commissioned to try to join the table there's bound to be that sense of suspicion to some degree Mm. but I think it is it is crucial, particularly in my sets, the women's sets that we work together, because if we don't communicate effectively with our um, organisations in one part of the country, we can't refer people in between them. We've got to communicate. We've got mm. to trust each other. Yeah. But I think that trust, I can see why smaller organisations have distrust of larger ones, and larger ones, I think, have distrust of the non-specialist organisation, the larger ones, you know, it goes kind of down the whole line. So I suppose it's about trying in all of your dealings to show integrity and to be honest and to, if you make mistakes and decisions, to say that you've made a mistake Mm -hmm. and to involve and listen to those voices and to make sure that you've got diverse voices around the table as well. I think one of the things... That, can, that you touched on before, Beth, was um, how do you maintain the energy and, and new services and make sure that you're still in touch? Well, that's how you do it, isn't it? By listening to those diverse voices from within yeah, the sector yeah, and involving them in those conversations. So it's really sad when uh, you go to perhaps a new area and organisations don't want to collaborate because they're missing out and so are you. Mm. And that means that you're clients your service users are potentially missing out Mm. but there is suspicion and it's no you know it's yeah there's reason for it I think yeah absolutely I think I remember being um I must have been standing in for somebody because the um sort of statutory funding side was not my remit Mm. when I was at Toynbee Hall I went to a meeting with Tower Hamlets council were hosting to get um thoughts and views from the local voluntary sector and uh, having worked at some of the larger charities sort of national charities mm-hmm. I considered Tommy Hall to be sort of quite small mm-hmm. and I remember quite a lot of hostility <laughs> towards <laughs> yeah. me personally within that room because I was from one of the I was mm-hmm. from a large organization as, mm-hmm. as far as a lot of the smaller organizations were concerned so yeah, I fe- I mean at the time I found that really bizarre, but I can understand where some of that is coming from because mm. because Tony Hall used to be like the lead organisation, so it would essentially commission a number of, yeah. of organisations yeah. underneath it. it. Creates that power yeah, imbalance, that, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, it does. It's yeah. a strange thing, isn't it? And I suppose because in our in my sector around domestic abuse is about understanding the dynamics of power and control, mm. and it that flows through the sector as well as through the people that we're working with. Yeah. Um, and it's trying to address that 
power imbalance in those meetings, I suppose, and listen to those voices. But if you are effectively someone's commissioner, it's difficult to achieve that. We were also talking about conference food. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> we were. <laughs> do you want to re- repeat? <laughs> repeat the cat thing because that made me laugh yeah so you said to me Beth that someone had posted a tweet to say that they were disappointed they'd been to a conference because there was no meat there and they needed meat because they had a dietary requirement and I just suggested the only people with dietary requirements for meat are actual cats which is, a, which is an <laughs> which amazing is statement yeah. yeah which is an amazing statement yeah I mean you've got quite Quite strong views on conference food, haven't you? Yes, yeah, it should all be vegetarian, but there should be a portion of it that's vegan too. There's no need, people do not need meat at lunchtime. Mm. Come on, guys, you don't need meat at lunchtime, everyone knows that. And also, all that happens if you have meat like sandwiches is that meat eaters eat all the vegetarian sandwiches, like all the egg and cress sandwiches are gone. Mm. And then there's these little nasty, crusty ham sandwich things left. Yeah. Everyone knows it's true shortly. (laughs) It's true. Best up to it. (laughs) So I've got a couple of questions that are about fun things. Although I tried it with Simon Scriver and it got a bit emotional. Do you have a song that feel optimises your, um, epitomises your organisation? A song? A song, yeah. (laughs) Can you sing it? Can you sing a song? Can I sing a song? Think of something that the questions change, can you sing a song? That's awful, isn't it? No, I'm not going to sing a song. It would have to be like Gloria Gaynor as all survival, but I'm not singing that. That's just hideous. I think you should sing it. Um, I can't because I'm tone deaf. All right. Yeah. I have a medical condition that means I can't sing. That's an excellent excuse. <laughs> Well, yeah, I was going to say if it works for Prince Andrew, but it, it didn't work it didn't for work, Prince Andrew, No, nothing's it? working for Prince Andrew, is No, it? in fact, what did you make of all that? Because that's obviously um, something that's very yeah. close to... Close which to which bit, Beth? Let's maybe talk about the interview, his approach to the interview, I guess the fact that he didn't recognise hmm. the victims at all yeah. in this, yeah. and some of the bizarre statements that he made like he's just too honourable yeah that's yeah. why he stayed at, at the house yeah. I couldn't even bear to watch the whole interview but the whole sense that somehow it would have been dishonourable not to stay at the person's house who's just been mm. convicted of abuse and it's just I, I can't even begin to think about what he was thinking about when he said that that whole lack of um empathy or understanding for the people that have been victimised and the sense of entitlement, I think, that comes from yeah. the whole way the interview was conducted. It's just absolutely sad that um, there is a lack, I think, generally of understanding of that vulnerability of young women being taken by older, mm. wealthy men and how awful that is. Mm. So, no. <laughs> no, thank you, Prince Andrew. To that interview, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I think I think a lot of people would would think, oh, he had some terrible media advisors, but actually, I think he had some very good media advisors, didn't he? That said, don't just don't do the interview or don't say just don't say anything that you would say. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it I, it's just I can't conceive of. How he thought that that interview would make things right mm. at all, mm. and I do hope that he does come forward and provides evidence and complies with any 
criminal justice investigation that takes place. I think that's the only thing really sensibly that he can do to start to show how seriously he takes the allegations and mm. the, the original behaviours. So, yeah. Do you think he's not come forward voluntarily because, I don't know, because he'd have to swear under oath or...? I don't know, Beth. Yeah. I'd have thought it's a lack of acceptance of anything has happened that's wrong. Yeah, that he's done Possibly. anything wrong. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, fair enough. But he's, he has now said, hasn't he, that he, he would come forward and speak to oh, people, right, okay. I think. Um, right, so you're not up for doing a song. But... No, I'm not up for doing a song, that's <laughs> hideous. <laughs> like, do you think that everyone, everyone concerned that would be? Is there a book, person or ethos that has inspired your work? This is a question that I ask everybody. A book, person or ethos? Um, well, I suppose ethos is feminism. I sort of grew up in the 70s and early 80s, but very feminist mother. Um, absolutely wanted to, sort of pragmatic feminism, I suppose. In the 70s and 80s, everything was so obviously unequal. Um, it was so difficult for women to leave abusive relationships or even have them even marginally recognised. So I'm quite a practical person. So the injustice of that really sort of spurred me on to do the work that I do. Um, so feminism and equality, definitely. Books, oh, there's all sorts, isn't there? Brilliant books, who knows why the cage bird sings, all of those sorts mm. of things that tell of of survivors' truths and stories that are really powerful. Mm. Um, and what was the other one? Book ethos. Is, is there a book person or ethos? You don't have to. You don't have to go through all of them. I really, mean, you just one. Do. You just wanted you one. Can. I don't have to go through every person, every everyone. book. I should go through every book that I've ever read. <laughs> that would be really That's interesting. Inspired you. Yeah. Um, there's loads of kind of strong women, isn't it? That inspire. I think every day. Um, it's difficult to pick one out. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the incredibly strong women that springs to mind that's involved with your work is Claire Thrussell. Yes. She's been doing a lot of work around the domestic abuse bill, hasn't yeah. she? Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, it's a it's sort of a null subject at the moment, isn't it? Because we're in where we're where we are with the election. I suppose. So that that means that the bill effectively has fallen, so it will depend really who's elected and the approach that they take to reinvigorating that. I think within the bill there's lots of really good opportunities for developments, lots of opportunities for more protection within the family courts, but it, it will just be a start. And I think that the frailties, some of the frailties of the bill is that it, it's not clear what resources will be thrown behind the bill. So there's mm. lots of discussion around... Um, preventative measures in schools and education and training, but that will need resourcing. The other thing that survivors tell us as well is that the family courts can be absolutely a re-traumatising experience for them. Mm. And there just isn't adequate support in that environment for victims. And actually, there's some case to say, a good case to say, that there should be support for both parties in the family court, legal support for both parties, mm. so that you reduce the impact of that um, perpetrator potentially wanting to cross-examine or bring in their case to court without having their side sort of dealt with by a professional. Mm. But again, it's the resourcing since legal aid's 
been massively reduced. It's mm. it's difficult to get that resource for those victims and survivors. Claire is just an amazing advocate, mm. an amazing uh, woman and mother, and has done so much to raise awareness. I think she was telling me a story that she went to meet Theresa May at number 10 and was very affected to um, Theresa at that point. And I think some of that some of that kind of interaction and some of that campaigning does feel like it's been noted in the original bill. But mm-hmm. what will happen to that when we get to the next parliament? Who knows? Of course, for us, it's a priority. For everyone else, people want Brexit done. <laughs> There's loads of things, isn't there, that are going to yeah. take precedence over getting the domestic abuse bill mm-hmm. in place. But we hopefully, if we've got commitment, I think most of the major partners, parties are committed to it, we can start that lobbying work as well to improve um, the bill and to really start to work with the Domestic Abuse Commissioner to think of how that some of that resourcing can be available or ha- you know what the thinking is behind the resourcing a bit. Mm. What sort of lobbying and campaigning do you do? We do, I, just, I suppose we're very local, so we yeah. work closely with our MPs. We've done some campaigning around family courts so we recently is that in york in in north yorkshire yeah so we've recently developed a family court report which um took on the views of 50 victims um 50 women that are going through the family courts uh professionals and that's due to be published so that's quite a sobering report because it Mm. says all of the things i mean it's just like a common theme a common thread about people feeling re-victimized through the family courts, that perpetrators deliberately abusing the family court system to bring cases back and re-traumatise people, judges not having, well, the courts not having adequate resources to ensure that cases are are dealt with in the the most expedient ways, and there not being those wraparound support for survivors and victims going through that process so we've been lobbying locally I suppose for Mm -hmm. for improvements we work closely with the police we've worked closely with the courts we also work with our national organization so I'm on the board now women's aid federation so anything that we do locally we try to fit into the national agenda and and kind of make Mm -hmm. sure that the voice of our local clients are heard at a national table yeah okay okay that makes sense that makes sense. Yeah, I wondered because I, I hadn't seen sort of um, campaigning in the like, we join te- this and lend your voice, but it's through people yeah, like it MPs is. and we, Not, and not to say that we wouldn't do more of that sort of campaign in the future if there were particular causes yeah. that we wanted to take up, but we tend to do it on a local level. We're, we're quite a practical organisation, yeah, so if yeah. we can suggest local changes that will help. So some of the things that have been put in place in the local family courts as a result of this um, report that we've done are, are quite good, just in terms of safe waiting areas, making sure that we've got some volunteers that can support people going through the family courts. We'll do those very practical things. And then anything that's highlighted as an issue, we'll work with our national organisations and our infrastructure organisations to take forward. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is that you are part of the newly formed Women's Steering Group of Akivo. Yes, it's to look at issues, I think particularly linking in with the Me Too stuff and all of the identification of the experiences of women in the workplace and Mm -hmm. in the wider society. It was recognition that there might be specific areas of interest that 
women's leaders need support on or need to consider. So it was just a, a, a set aside a special interest group to look at some of those okay. and to provide that space, I suppose, for women leaders to discuss common themes and to feed those into the yeah. whole. But I haven't been as active as I should be. Okay. I've been taken. I've been is that taken an apology? Off. Well, it is an apology, <laughs> but I've, I've joined the board of Women's Aid Federation, so I've been sort of really busy with that yeah. um, recently. Yeah. So I must admit, I've taken my eye off the ball a little bit. Yeah. It feels like Akiva are doing some really great things. They mm-hmm. seem to keep popping up for me, and I don't know yeah. whether it's because I'm more aware of them or because they do a charity podcast as well, mm-hmm. so I'm keeping my eye out. <laughs> or whether, like, yeah, it feels like they're genuinely doing some brilliant stuff. Um, definitely yeah definitely really interesting stuff cool okay is there anything else you want to chat about um no i don't think so i feel inclined to sing but i'm not going to (laughs) (laughs) but i do think that yeah we should start a campaign around conference food conference food okay let's do that yeah (laughs) thank you very much for your time thank you very much beth happy holidays There are two key learnings that I took from the chat with Sarah and they relate to commissioning and collaboration. Firstly, changing your charity model isn't necessary for everyone to thrive in a competitive commissioning environment, but contingency planning is essential. Understand your financial position and the other funding models that could work for you. Explore them early so that if you need to adapt, you have a plan in place. Your plan B should not be trying harder to make plan A work. Secondly, smaller and larger organisations have a social and moral responsibility to work together to ensure that the people we support continue to have access to the specialist services that they need and that diverse voices and perspectives are brought into service development and delivery, which in turn strengthens the sector. I hope that you enjoyed listening. If you did, please do share on social media. Hope you all have a fab Christmas and I'll see you on the other side. Like Santa, we're flying high on this wintry night. And I wish you all happy holidays.